Welcome, everybody, to Dead Talk Live. Today we have with us writer and director Kelsey Egan from the movie Glass House that is releasing on digital and on demand July 12th. Kelsey, thank you so much for being here with us. I know you're in South Africa. Um, how are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. It's 5 p.m. here. It's been a full day. Um, chatting to lots of lovely people. I'm excited to be on Dead Talk Live. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited to have you. I saw the movie. I was absolutely fascinated by it. Uh, I'm going to start off. Let's just get started off right away. Uh, just to clarify, according to IMDb, this is your feature film directorial debut. Is that accurate? That is. Okay. Uh, I'm going to start off with a compliment. Uh, as a director and people who love film, whether it's film students, people that have been in the industry for a long time, you start to watch films and you sort of pick up on the director's nuance on how they do stuff. And I got to I gotta tell you, Kelsey, I loved how you directed this film. And I have a particular scene in mind that I want to point out to you. It's somewhere in the middle of the movie where the girls dig up the previously freshly buried body. And they have it propped up sitting on a chair, okay? And you, you know, so we know the body is there. We know it's in the chair. And you do this beautiful... 360 degree pan starting from the dead body's backside yeah. all the way to the front and i'll tell you what in those 15 i don't know how long it lasted 15 20 seconds i knew it was a dead body i knew it was decomposed but you had built up this anticipation in me that i just i'm like i was just overwhelmed to see what this corpse looks like and that's all you, that's your nuance. That's how you like to direct things. Walk us through, just like that scene, uh, since it came across so beautifully, in my opinion, what did you want to portray in that scene? Thank you. First of all, thank you for noticing that shot because I fought so hard for that shot. You know, when you're doing an independent film like this and you're so strapped for resources and your budget is so small, any shot like that is a risk because our shooting schedule was already so tight. And that type of shot to pull it off requires like every department to come together beautifully. I mean, we had a dolly track laid in the perfect place that we had to plan out like exactly where those tracks, I think we had like two meetings and, and recce's just with, you know, DOP grips, lighting, um, art, everyone in terms of marking out on the lawn exactly where we were placing everything to get the payoff to have Gabe walking in the background so perfectly behind the reveal of the body to have Daisy pouring the tea in the perfect way. I mean, like, if that's the type of, like, choreography. It's a dance. It is. And I love doing shots like that, but they take time. And, you know, I think that shot alone, we took oof, at least 12 takes before we wow. were confident we got that dance right. And and that's a risk because in a film like, like Glass House, when you only have four weeks to shoot it, you know, and where you choose to allocate your time is really important in making sure you're servicing the right beat. So I'm I'm actually so thrilled that that shot landed for you it so effectively did. because it was one we were like, okay, this is a cheeky thing to to put into a film that is already a really tight schedule because it, it, it did take a couple of hours to pull off. 
but I'm so proud of it, and I'm so glad it, 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 it came out the way it did. And what makes it great is it shows you did not rush it. Uh, it was important for you to get it right, and you're right. It was a choreography with Gabe in the background with the body parts in the little dolly. So good. <laughs> what a legend. Uh, but to them, it was just so normal. So let me give the people a little brief synopsis of what Glass House is about. It's sort of this uh, post-apocalyptic slash dystopian world where the majority of the population has been wiped out by uh, a pathogen called the Shred. And it basically takes people's memories and it erases everything of who someone is it's sort of like a a, a virus in the form that is dementia and it, can, it happened to the majority of the population and you have this family majority a group of girls mother daughters and the son gabe uh who are living in this protected glass house anyone that comes within their property they automatically shoot no questions asked it's about their own self-preservation and survival. Uh, we're not going to spoil anything else. And just the movie takes on a life of its own when a stranger pops up and sort of turns everything upside down for them. Now, the movie does tackle uh, another interesting scene that I saw uh, was uh, there was a magazine article that mentioned COVID-19. Okay, so... How important was that for you to reference something that is going on in today's world? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. This whole experience of making this film was incredibly surreal because it was very much a sort of meta life imitates art situation for us. Emma, my wonderful um, co-writer, associate producer, work wife, um, we came up with this concept in early February of 2020. So way before, like two full months before we really had a sense of the impact that COVID-19 was going to have, like we had news articles coming out of China at that stage, but we had no idea yeah. what was coming. It wasn't until April that it really hit. Yeah. And our, our first major lockdown in South Africa started at the end of March. And what was so insane about this is that we had a, a, a number of concepts that we pitched to Showmax, hoping that they would green light one. And they came back to us a week before the South African lockdown was announced, green lighting a, a slate of three pictures. And I was in lockdown alone on my balcony, writing three scripts for like three months straight with Emma and our other co-writer um, on one of the other projects, Fred Stratum, wonderful talent, and our producer, Greg Buckle. And they were my lockdown family, wow. where we ended up having the incredible privilege of being stuck in our homes but getting to work on something that was personally so important to us and when we were writing glass house that's when it was really sinking in the eerie parallels in our mm -hmm. concept that we had came up with before we'd had any idea that the world was suddenly going to take this isolated turn um and we were experiencing that isolation that claustrophobia in our own lives as we were writing the script and then when we were lucky enough to be able to actually go in into production in November 2020, again by fluke, um, our filming location, we were shooting at St. Pearson Conservatory in, in Port Elizabeth in an in in incredible park um, there. And 
they got announced as a hotspot like two weeks after we started. Wow. Um, after we, our a whole cast and crew went there. So we were in a bubble, mm-hmm. like very strictly bubble, terrified of like anyone getting sick with a COVID officer and all of the safety compliance happening, yeah. you know, keeping to ourselves in this glass house. So it was like the whole experience was life imitating art and exactly. vice versa. And I think it definitely informed the creative. Now, the film uh, is not the outbreak of this pathogen, which is called The Shred. You can tell through various clues and hints throughout the movie, they've been living this for a while, whether it's one, two generations or whatnot. The little girl, Daisy, uh, she is fascinated with animals. She's never seen an animal. She doesn't know what a horse looks like. So uh, did COVID... Uh, play a factor in the writing part of the script to maybe project into the future if COVID, because we didn't know what it was going to be at that time, how how worse it was going to get, what life might be like five, ten years down the road? Uh, honestly, no, because I think the, the vehicle or, or the, the virus that is COVID, we knew at that stage how it operated and what family it came from, from SARS, you know, so, mm-hmm. and the shred is so different. Um, so I wasn't, I don't think Emma and I were that, I don't, maybe this was overly optimistic of us, but I, we did see the end in sight for COVID. We were estimating it was going to be like it for two or three years. Yeah. Um, that was our, that was our guesses at the time in the first lockdown. And what we were most inspired by because when we came up with a concept initially we hadn't known the impact the pandemic was going to have was frankly the themes of memory Mm -hmm. um both emma and i have close family members who have suffered from memory loss uh hers dementia mine um short-term memory loss from not receiving oxygen to the brain for a couple of minutes during a procedure and that i think personally has has been something that's been quite relevant to us in our own lives And we wanted to explore just how important memory is, not only for sense of self and identity, but in terms of influencing um, behaviors and how one engages with the world in the present. Mm -hmm. I think there's a narrative, um, a a popular narrative that, you know, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And, you know, you can go through life's traumas and you come out the other side and all of a sudden you're, you're tougher and better. And my experience of that type of thing hasn't been true. I think, you know, with PTSD and more mental health awareness and and being cognizant of the fact that sometimes you go through experiences, you don't bounce back from it. It does change you forever. And it doesn't necessarily um, change you for for the better. And we were really interested in exploring that through the, the eyes of two sisters who have such fundamental different approaches to their past and to preserving their identity and sense of self, one of which was is like, this is too much, this trauma is not something I want, this does not serve me, I want to erase it. And the other who feels like holding on to all of that is their only way to survive and prevent such mistakes from happening in the future. And that sort of goes back to our to our deeper themes. And in a lot of ways, this film is an allegory for colonialism, because there's this facade of this idyllic life but what price does one pay for that? Like exactly. how much blood is on your hands in order to maintain that? And the two sisters that you mentioned, their characters' names are B and Evie. B is played by Jessica, uh, Evie by Anya. They did a brilliant job as sisters. So let's talk a little bit about the family dynamics. Uh, we have the matriarch of the family. We have the sisters. We have Gabe, the brother. 
but it's not uh, very clearly spelled out for us as to who's whose mother. Uh, th there is incest uh, in the family. That That is sort of laid out for us. They know uh, the world has dwindled down. They don't know what's outside their wooded area. They don't know. That's why when the stranger arrives, they ask question, what's it like out there? Who's around? And he describes it, it's pretty bad. Um, so let's talk about the family dynamics. What was the, the important thing that you wanted to portray uh, with the sisters? We all know they cared and loved for Gabe, who has come down with Shred, and they're trying to take care of him as best as he can. Uh, but let's talk about the matriarch. Um, what do you see her role being in relation to the children that she's tasked to look after? Well, she, she preserves the narrative, right? She, she crafts the reality with regards to the narrative of the family. And it's that narrative that keeps them safe Yeah. with the glass house as their sanctuary and the rules that sort of commandments, so to speak, that they follow to ensure their safety and preservation in this world um, and, and sort of the holder of the memories. And, and that for us was, um, you know, Emma comes from a, a family with a lot of anthropologists. I think her father's an anthropologist, and she grew up with um, a lot of a lot of those themes. And I'm fascinated. Um, I study neuroscience and behavior, so you know how human behavior is influenced by by cultural by mm -hmm. um, versus fundamental, like what what we're born with that that uh, confrontation between how much our environment influences versus our genetics, yeah. something that really interests me. And the fusion of that, um, I think, came out of the the power with, with Emma's and I working together was the power of ritual, the stories, the, the fabrications that we tell ourselves um, in order to survive or live in a way that we feel okay yes. with who we are and feel safe and secure. And oftentimes those are security blankets. Mm -hmm. And the idea that that narrative can shift and change to suit to enable a, a, a world in which you feel safe, um, I think was something we were really interested in exploring. And, and, and our matriarch mother preserves that narrative for, for the majority of the film. When it comes to the two sisters, uh, B and Evie, they couldn't be any more different. Uh, one, well, we're going to get into it a bit. To some extent, the whole family is affected by the shred uh, pathogen, uh, that sort of speak. But there are some exceptions as to a few of them that might be immune to it. We don't know. It's not. I'm. I, I'm not giving too much away. We don't know. Uh, a lot of stuff is is left up to viewer interpretation. But the two sisters and their relationship to each other, do you think Evie uh, takes on the responsibility of she feels it's her job to look after B? Yeah, I think Evie's personality is such that she ends up shouldering the weight of the entire family because that's just in her. That's just who she is. Um, and, and her awareness of the truth and the fact that she's held on to the truth and knows the truth the way she does. But I think what's what, what, what I love about the film and what was important to us with it was to show that you can be so confident that you know the truth. That doesn't necessarily mean it is the truth to everyone else. Exactly. And, and, the, and the idea of the unreliable narrator. And I think that was when we were writing the script, something that we really 
worked very hard to be cognizant of in, in terms of the reveals over the course of the narrative structure of realizing that the narration of the reality that our characters perceive isn't necessarily what actually happened. And that's what's so frightening about memory in general and also the stories that we tell ourselves because as, as you know, you know, in your relation, interpersonal relationships, everyone has the side has their own side to the story and you mm -hmm. tell the same experience one person's from one person's perspective you hear it from another it can be two very different things i find that exceptionally disconcerting mm -hmm. so then you you enter and especially you know now we're sort of in this like post-truth era where we just see saw that exact same thing play out politically and with covid on such a massive scale i mean and, and that's where this film again felt so meta to us because when we were writing it we we'd only begun to hear sort of the the dissent or the the um division created by the covid situation of, of different people sort of believing different things about the virus and its origins and its le level of threat based on where they were coming from and their perception of reality and how different those narratives were absolutely i think you hit the nail on the head so let's talk about the stranger when the stranger comes into their lives in your opinion, who is he supposed to represent? Is he supposed to represent somebody that is bringing the outside world truth to the family, or is he there to, for his own gain, to have a sanctuary, uh, a, a stable place to live out his years? He very quickly realizes that the matriarch has a plan for him. Uh, he's very quick to pick up on that. So how do you view the stranger when you were writing him and ultimately what he ended up being on the screen? What I love about the character of the stranger is that, and, and all of the characters in this film, which I feel is very true to life, is that they're both the heroes and the villain of their own story. Exactly. And while everyone can do things that could be crucified as wrong, from their perspective and if you understand where they're coming from you can empathize and or agree from their you know justification why it was acceptable and mm -hmm. how they're able to live with themselves with the choices that they make i think the character of b is particularly painful in terms of how she lives with herself and that and i'm not going to speak much more about that yeah. that to me packed the greatest the greatest punch and the choices that she made to survive um, but I think with, you know, without getting too deep into anything from a spoiler perspective, what I love about the stranger is setting him up that we wanted the audience to have to decide what they thought he was and Absolutely. not be overly prescriptive there and let it possibly go both ways. Um, yeah. because I think through his through line as a character, you when you finally understand him and where he's coming from all of his choices i would i i resonated with me regardless of whether or not i would think they were right or wrong in a world like that there really is no right or wrong it's like you said it's up to everyone's perspective and how they view the world uh the ending we're not going to spoil did you guys grapple with how to end uh, the film? I loved how you ended the film. Uh, you know, it was sort of a, a shock, and then boom, fade to black into the credits. Did you guys grapple with the direction on how to end it? Uh, or was it pretty much agreed on? I think there were a total of three writers on this script. Were you? Two, it was Emma, Emma and I. Emma and you. Were, were you yeah. both on the same page on how to end this? Um, I think instinctively, yes, we, we did have conversations about the ending, um, with, um, Greg producer and our, and our, and show max. 
um, those conversations were had um, and it was very carefully interrogated, but the ending that is in the film is the ending that felt right and the most unapologetic and truthful to the themes of the film. Mm -hmm. And I felt very strongly about that. Um, the world is not always roses. Exactly. And if I was the stranger, I, and if I was in his shoes, I could see me making the exact same decisions as throughout Which the movie. Which is horrifying. It but, is. It is. Yeah, but also, um, you know, it's like when you're in survival scenarios like that, how often people choose themselves and, and empathy sort of goes out the window um, in certain scenarios. And, you know, I think no one likes to talk about it, but I think oftentimes we are selfish. That, it's in our nature. Uh, just one last question. If you had to pick, would you say this is uh, like a post-apocalyptic movie, a dystopian type film? What What word or phrase would in your mind, best fit this movie? For me, it's a dystopian fairy tale. Okay. When we were writing it, we were like, this is a fairy tale. Even the morality plays in it, 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 it thematically. The costumes, the yeah, white, like, the white. You know, both, both, both Emma and I love the Bronte sisters and grew up reading, you know, um, gothic horror novels. And I think that influence definitely threaded through. Um, I love fusing, fusing genres. But the look and the feel, like, I love doing something that looked very different than the expectation of a typical post-apocalyptic story. And yeah. For me, that was very in line, again, with the, the allegory of colonialism and how you have this beautiful facade. But what rot does it cover? You know, what does it hide? And um, sort of the subversion of, the, of what you would expect visually um, and, and the, the lyricism of that. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah, that, that's why, for me, the dystopian fairy tale is the most accurate description. Absolutely. And the costume, costume design, the women with the white, the, the stained glass drawings on the windows. It is like a fairy tale. And that glass house is their castle, in a way. It, yeah, and we were so lucky to shoot in that location and the support we got from the Eastern Cape Tourism Board. I mean, they were so wonderful to us, and it was such a privilege to be able to shoot there. Where I, Emma used to visit as a child. She grew up in the Eastern Cape, and we did that very naughty thing where we had a location in mind when we wrote the script without knowing for sure we were going to be able to get it. And and when we did, it was it was actually a dream come true because when we first wrecked it, we didn't know this, but when, when I scouted the location for the first time and found the tree where they yeah. have their, their guard post, we'd written that tree in the script already without having any idea if there was an actual suitable tree on the property. And I'm wow. scouting the location and there's the perfect tree in the perfect spot where we were able to, to, to production as I was able to build that blind. And it was like, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was so perfect. Lucky. It sounds perfect. So it was, yeah, it was, it was unreal. Guys, uh, the movie again is called Glass House. It is coming out July twelfth uh, or fourteenth on digital and video on demand. Uh, it's a dystopian fairy tale, like Kelsey just described. But there's so many plot twists. You're gonna love the ending of this film. I highly recommend you go out and watch it. You won't be disappointed. Kelsey, you did a brilliant job in your feature film directorial debut. I loved how you did it. I loved how you pulled this story that you helped write and direct and put it all together. Congratulations. Are you excited, nervous as the date approaches? 
Oh, I'm just so excited. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really, I'm really grateful. We've been moved every step of the way with how well this film has been received and we're really proud of it and really just, yeah, the privilege of being able to share it so widely, you know, means the world and also show off what South Africa is capable of as of an industry, but, you know, um, in, in an independent, independent film space, it's, it's a privilege. I gotta ask you, you don't, you don't have a South African, are you from the States? And, yeah, yeah. I, I, I uh, grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I've been living in South Africa since 2007. So just over 14 years now. I hear I'm it's a, a beautiful citizen. country. Yeah. I hear well, it's a I'm in love. Yeah, it's a beautiful country. One day I, I, I really hope to visit. Again, thank you. you. Thank you to Kelsey Egan, the writer, director of Glass House. I want to thank our audience, those who are tuning in live and those who are going to watch this later on. On behalf of the writer and director of Glass House, Kelsey Egan and myself, everybody stay safe and stay walking. Bye bye. Thank you.